Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, nearly 600 and counting are available for free. It's all free online via iTunes, Stitcher, the Other People app. It's all out there. It's free. It's a listener-supported program. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. How's it going, folks? What's up? How you doing? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I have Dora Malik on the program today. She is a poet, and her most recent collection is called Stet. It's available from Princeton University Press. Her other collections include uh, Say So and another called Shore Ordered Ocean. She also has a forthcoming collection called Flourish, which will be out next year in 2020 from Carnegie Mellon University Press. She is an instructor, a professor, at Johns Hopkins University uh, in their writing seminars. So Dora Malik uh, is coming up in just a couple of seconds. I don't really have much other than to say uh, this is a Sunday episode. I felt inspired. I would love to do two episodes a week. Uh, but for now, anyway, uh, I'm just going to keep dropping Sunday episodes when I can, sporadically. And, of course, the show uh, regularly... Uh, updates every Wednesday. There's a new episode every Wednesday, rain or shine, and then every once in a while, or when I can, I will do one on Sunday. What do you think of that? Uh, I hope you protested this past weekend. I'm just going to say that. We got to get out into the streets and make some noise. We got to get engaged. I'm just going to say that. Is that okay to say? Okay, let's talk to a poet. Let's take a break from all that and talk to a poet. Her name is Dora Malik, and uh, again, she's got a collection out called Stet. I had a great time meeting her. I had a great time talking with her, and you're going to hear us in conversation right now. Here she is, folks. This is Dora Malik. Dora Malik. 
Uh, I have a very bad sense of direction, so when I get somewhere, it's kind of new to me again, even if I've been here a lot. So uh, I am sort of perpetually surprised by wherever I am. Wait, you don't uh, like, you mean like you don't remember where you were? I remember where I've been, but the route to getting there right. is what surprises me. Uh, I don't have the the good sense of direction. We think, oh, I turn left on this street and right on this street. Um, so I'll have these deja vu moments, but it's not deja vu. It's just, oh, I literally have been here. I literally spent time in this neighborhood, but I came by a different way. And so now I'm here. Uh, so it's it's a little bit like a goldfish, you know, like oh. you're turning around in the bowl and then you're sort of delighted by where you are. So uh, I've been thinking about getting a flip phone. Because I'm, I want to be one of those people who's like, fuck the smartphone. I want to like reclaim my brain. So I have these like fantasies, like I'm going to get like a dumb phone. But the thing that I'm most concerned about not having is GPS. I feel that way too. And I would love to, and I could go on a long a rant in agreement with you about how I think my phone has hijacked my brain, uh, my creative brain. Uh, and uh, but I feel the same way. I don't know about G. I, I wouldn't know where I was, which might be good. I mean, um, yeah, get lost. Yeah, get lost. You, you already have a terrible sense of direction. Yeah, Embrace yeah. No, it. I'm I'm living I'm living in a kind of lost state. So why not go even further? Yeah. The only fear is I know we both have kids, or I have a kid, and so the idea of sort of uh, being absolutely lost with them seems or trying to get them somewhere seems like a little. And then it's the photos and the videos. <sighs> but I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to look at these photos anyway. I'm not, I'm not a sentimentalist. I'm not going to sit around and like watch. I don't, I haven't, mm -hmm. I've never looked at a photo that I took on my phone ever. Really? See, I look at mine constantly. Do you? Yeah. Um, constantly. I, I find it like super weirdly nourishing to go back in and, and flip through even, I mean, both photos of actual human beings, but also like photos of flowers I took in Wyoming. I'll like go back and be like, oh, that flower. So I don't know. I, I would miss it. I would really. Did you take photos of flowers in Wyoming? Yes. You did? Yeah. Like what, I, Rocky Mountain wildflower like flower? Yeah. Like columbines, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and some of it is I draw. Uh, and I like to draw kind of obsessive, intricate things. And so I like to do it from life, but like who among us has time to sit down and like draw a flower for, you know, an hour, um, except rarely. So I'll sometimes take pictures in the hopes. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes I do go back and like re-render them and kind of live with those shapes. But more often than not, they just live in my phone and oh, I look yeah, at Oh, yeah, because I was looking at your website. You are like a really gifted visual artist, too. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I try to kind of, I mean, I'm definitely sort of, uh, I feel like it's safer to think of myself as an amateur, even though, I mean, I studied fine art undergrad, and I still draw, and I've been publishing these visual poems. It's honestly, it's easier to get them out in the world if I call them visual poems. I don't know what I would call them, just drawings otherwise, uh, but they're drawings with text in them. Um, so to be able to say, yeah, this is a visual poem. There's a place for it, uh, in magazine, but they're really just drawings with text to them. Yeah. Is there like, a, I mean, I'm not the greatest art historian in the world. Is there a, a tradition of visual art in contemporary, uh, America just to, you know, use the obvious example of, um, uh, people who really do integrate text into their paintings, like consistently i think there i think there is 
but I think there's also a divide, and this might just be with how it's marketed, uh, sort of who you say you are on paper that gets you some kind of funding. Uh, there are painters like, I mean, Glenn Ligon is somebody who comes to mind, um, who took the Zora Neale Hurston line, I feel most colored when, um, and he made that into a really, you know, a striking, arresting art. Uh, and so, so I mean, he's somebody who comes to mind for me, but then there are also poets, like, for example, the poet Bianca Stone, who makes poetry comics, and her poetry comics are really, de- I mean, you, you wouldn't call them regular comics, they're poetry, but they're super integrated. Lauren Haldeman does that too. So there, there are people who I really admire, and you'd talk about Glenn Ligon and say he's a fine artist. That's not to say these other people aren't fine. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're what amazing. Does mean? What does it mean? What does it take to be a fine artist? I think it has to do with galleries. I mean, are you represented by a gallery? But I don't know. I mean, you know as much about this as I do. And honestly, when I was in my undergrad, I did my undergrad studying fine art at Yale. And so you kind of got to window lick a little bit into this really great graduate program that's very much a feeder into the, the New York art world. What you window lick? Yeah, window. Yeah. What does this mean? Win- yeah, you never heard window lick? I don't think so. A window lick. It means like you want what's on the other side of the window. Okay. You I know? That, I, I'm more like press nose against. I'm yeah, not licking pre- anything. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> I can't help it. As soon as you just you just have to lick. Uh, I, <laughs> so um, yeah, so window licking, um, eh, but w- that really made me lose where I was. Uh, just <laughs> thinking about this idea of you're seeing what it mean, what it takes to to package yourself and be a fine artist, professional artist in New York, and and I didn't think I had what it took in terms of, I guess, sheer sort of stamina in terms of asserting yourself that way and, and committing, or maybe, I mean, or maybe my strengths just lay more in poetry and I love visual art. Right. Um, I mean, I've, I've, uh, trying to swat a mosquito. That thing has been torturing me for like days. I see it too. I do. You told me I wasn't supposed to turn my head, but now there's a mosquito, which seems like an extra challenge. I'm going to try to kill it during the course of this conversation. I'm watching it right now. But, um, anyway, I wanted to say that I've had like fracture, you know, just like really small conversations, I think, on this show here and there about the visual art world and sort of drawing a comparison between like people in uh, literature and publishing who, you know, find a way to make a name for themselves versus, um, you know, people in the, you know, the fine art world who do the same. And in literature and publishing, there's a lot of mystery, like who becomes that person who has that kind of publishing success and develops that kind of, um, and a market presence for lack of a better way of putting it versus like, who's, how do you become like Jasper Johns? Do you know what I'm saying? Like what has to happen? Who do you, somebody has got to like become your backer basically. I, I think so. I mean, I think you have to have patrons and a gallery and all of that. Yeah. People, people, I think people with money have to, uh, sort of bet on you. And and of course, you know, when you say Jasper Johns, I mean, obviously that's skewed in the same sort of white male uh, upper class coming from means, etc. Does he come uh, from I don't even know anything about I, him. You know, I actually don't. I, I shouldn't. I don't. He's, he's maybe the wrong example. I guess I just mean, uh, hopefully that world is maybe changing to some extent as to who can get their foot in the door there. Um, but yeah, I think, 
I th- I think you have. I, I worked for a little bit uh, with a nonprofit. Um, well, it started as a nonprofit, and now it's sort of part of the University of Iowa, the Iowa Youth Writing Project. Um, and I wanted it to uh, get it, you know, get its feet under it, et cetera. And I wanted it to become part of a larger sort of network of these nonprofit youth-based organizations. And it became very clear that if you want to do it the real way, what you need is a million dollars. And and in other words, you need that seed money to start the thing, to then become part of the bigger thing. Um, and I, of course, didn't have a million dollars, didn't know anybody who had a million dollars, and ended up doing it in that more grassroots way uh, of you, you start with two little classes, and then you build it, and then you get a grant, et cetera, et cetera, which was great, and it worked, but it was interesting to me to think, oh, this is how people sometimes fast track these things when you think, oh, how did somebody do that? Well, somebody had a million dollars. I mean, I'm not stating anything that's not totally obvious. Well, Uh, but I mean, you know, sometimes there can be a a bit of mystery to it. I mean, I feel like it ultimately comes down to people with money if we're going to continue like thinking about fine art. Um, But there's still like the mechanics of how you get that and like the social achievement of getting yourself into contact with those people in those circles and convincing them and yeah all that stuff seems exhausting to me so when you were an undergraduate you were studying fine art you were writing poetry i was you were so you were doing both all the time i was writing poetry all the time and in some way i think i revise history a little bit to say oh i was focused on fine art and writing poetry privately but that's not really true i mean i i was trying to publish a little bit as a college student you know whatever a college student might do i was reading at readings um i was i think intimidated by the english department and the the way that it felt a little bit like running a a, a gauntlet like an academic gauntlet uh, and so i found the fine art department to suit my temperament better at that time what was your temperament at that time I think aesthetically rebellious, if that isn't too cheesy. Um, I think I was maybe quicker to take offense than I needed to. I felt like I had something to prove more than I needed to, but maybe that's what every 19-year-old is sort of supposed to feel. I didn't want to be obedient, and somehow it felt like I had to... um, pay my respects in the right way. And of course, none of none of that. I mean, I look back and I think, well, what did I not want to read Shakespeare? You know, that's like Shakespeare is amazing. Of course, I should have wanted to read Shakespeare. And I did read Shakespeare and I went to plays and things like that. But I sort of it felt like that classroom space just made me a little more squirmy and dutiful. Um, so I took when I took poetry classes, I took them with uh, the poet Elizabeth Alexander um, who's an amazing poet. And at that time, she was at Yale teaching um, in the uh, in the African-American studies department. Um, and now she runs the the Mellon Foundation. Um, but she was amazing. And she I felt like I could really have a connection with her, um, like a personal both both aesthetic, personal. She sort of opened uh, up my world of contemporary poetry um, and uh, and I ended up babysitting for her kids and organizing her books and working at her kids' daycare center. And so I think she was both a mentor and also 
like a very real sort of adult human figure for me. Who, uh, who was like doing it? Who was doing it? Yeah, yeah. Who 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 was doing it? Um, uh, and her her husband, um, who really tragically uh, passed away. Uh, did she write a book about she that? She did. It's beautiful. It's it's real, incredibly moving. Uh, she did write a book about it. Um, but he he was a, an amazing painter who actually was in that Yale program. Um, uh, but so, so yeah, I mean, to me, their family, looking at their family and the way they made a life out of art, and even being able to have in some way access to seeing that side of their lives, it just made it seem a lot more real to me and accessible than a lot of the really larger than life figures. I mean, she's a larger than life figure, but was a larger than life figure where you could like have cardamom tea with her and it felt real. What kind of tea is that? Cardamom tea? I don't um, think I've had this. It's, uh, I mean, I guess it's sort of chai-like maybe. Maybe it's just chai tea. Again, I, what, did I, what do I know now and what did I know when I was 20? But uh, I feel like I have a, a real sense memory of this tea that they used to have. Okay. I'm going to have to try that out. Yeah, do it. I've been getting this thing at the, uh, I don't want to drink caffeine too late in the day. I'm on this like trip. I don't want to get, you know, I used to not have rules, but now I'm like, I'm going to cut myself off after a certain hour. Yeah. So if I'm in the coffee shop, I feel like obligated to buy something if I'm going to be working in there. So I'll get this like, um, turmeric latte. Mm. It's like turmeric. Yeah. How, how do that's you pronounce supposed, it? Uh, tur I say turmeric. Turmeric. But... It's like a latte. Oh, turmeric supposed to be, have super powerful properties. I know, I know. This is like, if you know, like I'm extremely susceptible to any kind of health trend that I read mm. on the internet. So I read like turmeric is like a superfood. I'm like, okay. I'm in. Let's do it. And can can the, you feel it? I don't know. <laughs> I tell myself I can't. Yeah. But I think uh, the the bigger point is that it's it's not terrible. You think it would be, but it's actually sort of chai like and delicious. That's cool. And I was like expecting myself to because I have the ability to like choke down things that are just like not tasty like did you drink apple cider vinegar and stuff like did if i think that? it's gonna help me i will i'll be like fine i can take the pain <laughs> leeches and yeah that's... i'm actually covered in leeches <laughs> right now hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so yeah, I don't even know. So you were drinking tea with Elizabeth. Oh yeah. But just that, um, that 
that sense of a of a human being. So I I don't know. I mean, I I hope I'm. I don't actually think I'm quite as available to my students as she was. She's a really amazing person, um, just in just in general. But uh, now you got a kid. So yeah, but she maybe, had two kids. She had two. She has two sons. I know, but that's what I'm saying. Now you can have your students babysit for you. Oh, I, yes. Suddenly oh, you'll be like, I'm so available to you. Come on over. You're right. Fold some clothes. You're right. God, yeah. God, I guess. I guess stu- college students suddenly become more useful yeah. when. Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's how it. I mean, but I mean, I feel that to make a life in uh, writing is enormously difficult. I'm thinking fiction, nonfiction to make a life in poetry, even harder to make a life in fine art. I don't know exactly like if you're a painter or something, I don't know how to, I don't know how to score it, like which one's harder than the other, but poetry seems especially difficult. So it strikes me that it would be, um, super valuable to be exposed to somebody who had figured out a way and to actually like from the inside out, be able to like lay eyes on it. And to not have it be this impossible, like, you know, impossible, like dream, but also like this logistical impossibility. Like, how do you even start to begin to do that? You know, and she did. And you saw it. Yeah, I I think I absolutely agree with that. And I also think we're talking about health, uh, you know, including sort of mental health under that umbrella. I think we have these myths of what it means to be an artist and a poet, and you have to give up everything and have sort of no i mean i I think there's a history of of artists and poets behaving badly and not being very happy while they were behaving badly, and so to see somebody who was kind and balanced and generous with the people around her. Uh, and had human connections and, and sort, of, <laughs> sort of wasn't... Did her laundry regularly. Yeah, did her laundry, yeah. It, it, it was not that I had thought, oh, I have to go off the rails, uh, but I, I do think it was really great for me to, to, to see somebody who, who was brilliant and also striving for some kind of balance. And so, like, what about the, because I think people listening, there might be, I'm, I'm thinking of the person out there or the people out there who are listening, who are thinking, I'm young, or I'm just starting down this path, and I would love to be, uh, like, I'd spend my life in books and poetry. Like, you, you do have to have some sort of academic career. Like, that really helps. I mean, like, nobody, I don't think anybody out there is just making a living from publishing poetry, right? I don't think anyone is if they do they're probably making it off of speaking fees or instagram too yeah yeah uh, they're they're influencers or something um but no i do i do think there are poets who are really strong performers uh who can get representation and can uh make some kind of life that way i do think that connection with academia and teaching it has become a kind of go-to uh, in the way that maybe, I don't know, patronage or something for a much smaller group used to be. But I'll admit that those of us who find tenure-track jobs in academia um, are very small few these it's days. It's so hard. Like- it's so hard and dwindling. And, uh, and in terms of advocating for adjuncts and, uh, you know, people sort of on these short-term contracts, it's they, 
it's terrible pay. I mean, it's it's really I used, hard. I used to adjunct. Did you? Yeah. yeah. It was it was like it was like very uh, enriching work in some ways, but it was the pay and the. That whole part yeah. of it was just—it was a disaster. Yeah, I, I certainly, I certainly did too. Uh, and I think it works okay for a while when you're young. When you, you know, knock on wood, if you're young and you don't have health issues and you're not supporting anybody, and um, and it's sad also because the people who lose, besides, you know, besides the adjuncts themselves, are obviously the students. Where here are these amazing people who can't be part of an institutional memory. Really, uh, you know, you can't. Uh, even when they do write letters of recommendation, or so, they're doing that on their own time. So it really, uh, it, yeah, it's it's rough. Um, and you're now a tenure track. I'm tenure track. Yeah, at I, Johns Hopkins. Yeah. See, I always, of course you always think of Johns Hopkins in like a medical context. Yeah. But I was like, this is actually the perfect place for a writing program. Like you have like immediate access to like a good psychiatric ward. <laughs> <laughs> Can can make yourself a subject in all the studies. Just walk across the quad. There's a team of uh, men and yes. women in white lab coats who are ready to see you. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, they have a great engineering program too, so we can engineer like the perfect robot robo poet too, which well, is good. I feel like that's coming. Aren't oh, there yeah. like robots and like you know there are AI uh, novels being written now? Oh yeah, there are AI novels. There's all of that, and there's also which I don't know that much about, but the kind of big data data mining kind of approach to uh to thinking about literature and the history of literature there's all yeah it's it's uh it's quite a world see okay i have i have this uh thought about poetry that because it tends to live on the periphery like the cultural periphery uh in the states and all over the place but you know i'm thinking especially here in america that maybe the answer is to try to hybridize as you were sort of alluding to earlier where you leverage technology or you uh, mix media and you sort of like smuggle it in there, you know, and, um, you know, you go on Instagram, like for example. And I mean, do you have strong feelings about that? Because some of those poems, people are like, oh my God, this is so trite and like treacly and um, ridiculous. And yet it's getting like 60 million likes. But I feel like just that basic idea of saying, like, well, this is where the people are. They're looking at a bunch of garbage and like comparing themselves to whatever famous reality star. Like, give them a poem. Just yeah. smuggle a poem in there somehow. I, you know, I, I like that, and I, I don't have I don't have strong feelings about Instagram. Like, I, I'm not resentful that there are people, uh, you know, making actual money on Instagram. I mean, I'll see I'll see something on a t-shirt sometimes we're all think oh that's really cool or really beautiful in the same way that you see something on on instagram and part of it is it's often really immediately accessible um and so in that sense i mean accessible gets a bad name i don't think it's inherently bad but i do think getting back to this idea of the smartphone there's some part of it that is most available to a quick scrolling read a lot of the poetry that i like to read is poetry that sort of keeps opening up and opening up um, in the same way. I mean, in the same way, like you can see a beautiful person and think, oh, that person, that's immediately striking. But often the people you fall in love with become more interesting and more beautiful to you because you're spending, you're putting in the work and spending lots of time with them. Um, so there's no part of me that says, oh, we can't have all these different pleasures. But some of the pleasures that I like 
uh, take more of that relationship time. So, so no, that's not to say don't uh, sort of embed art wherever you can. And my my example of this that I always kind of think about um, is kind of haunting to me. When I was in Iowa working with the Iowa Youth Writing Project, we did work at the Iowa Juvenile Home, um, which uh, has since been uh, taken apart and privatized. Uh, as no thing, kidding? Which is not good. Who, yeah. who owns it now? Uh, I mean, I, I think it doesn't... I, I, you know, I don't actually know what the building is even used for anymore, if, if that location is there. But, I mean, it just means some of those children are kind of scattered to the wind. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, you don't think of sort of, of a government uh, facility as particularly promising, but a private facility, there's even less oversight. I mean, it's kind of the adjunct system there too, where people get paid on these short-term contracts. They're not paid incredibly well. So anyhow, I'm sorry I'm on my soapbox about this, but point being, um, I was was there and was doing a writing workshop with these, uh, you know, teenage, teenage girls. Um, and one of them asked if it was okay if she could read a poem that wasn't, that she hadn't written. And I think she thought, like, would she get in trouble for plagiarism or something? And I said, no, of course, like, read this poem. And I, I didn't know what I was expecting, but what I was expecting was not Shakespeare. Um, and uh, and she read this Shakespeare sonnet on friendship uh, and sort of thinking about, I think it's sonnet 30. Um, I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But... Um, uh, it's it's one of the sonnets that I might be blank out of. It's about friendship when I alone, uh, and and then um, the the ending. You think about the person and you feel better. And she had encountered that in a young adult novel, um, where the novelist embedded poetry in this young adult novel. Which to me, I thought that's so cool. What a cool way to get poetry to her. And and she, I got. You know, I got teary-eyed and was so moved by it and sort of said, do you know – I mean, it makes me sound like a snob to say, like, do you know this is Shakespeare? <laughs> uh, but, the, but the answer was no. She, and I said, you know, this is amazing to me that here's this poem from centuries ago and you're here reading it and we're – you know, how did – this is so cool. And she had no idea of the time frame of when Shakespeare lived. Like I was breaking down what that mean, you know, how many she's like, wait, so this many hundred years ago was when she didn't, she thought maybe, you know, yeah, he's dead, but not. So I think I was sort of amazed at her connecting with this poem um, that's something I might have been intimidated by, like I was saying about my education, seeing it in a context of, oh, this is a test and can you, but here she was coming to it in this very different context and really connecting with it because here's somebody who is in this facility removed from everyone she loves and cares about. And she finds this poem that's about thinking about somebody who's far away from you and feeling better just thinking about them. That's, that's really sweet. It was cool. It yeah. was very cool. And that, when we're talking about poetry and access to poetry and who gets to be a poet and can you make money being a poet, I will say, in poetry's defense, think about how few things you need, accoutrement, you know, objects you need to make poetry. You could literally make poetry just in your head. 
if you're using memory devices, you know, I mean, that's, that's how Jay-Z does it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, um, you, you know, it's how it's how ancient ancient folks did it. Um, it's how oral artists do it and did it. Um, and so I say all you need is, you know, pen and paper, but really all you need is your mind. I mean, people were memorizing poetry to have it in their heads in concentration camps. People, uh, you know, are, are part of these oral traditions, etc. So when we think about what it takes to make a life as a poet in America in 2019, that's kind of one thing. But when you think about what it takes to write poetry as a poet, um, you know, Audre Lorde, uh, I would have you know said this too. It's sort of it's something somebody can do on their lunch break, do in their heads. Um, it doesn't ha- need a lot of that infra- infrastructure. Of it other can arts. fit. Yeah, it can fit into a life. Even, yeah. even if like maybe your day job is far removed from it. But I think people who are like predisposed to this kind of art and to this kind of work tend to want to be in it more than just like fifteen minutes a day if they have their druthers. I. I fully agree, and I don't want to sound like I'm uh, endorsing some kind of bootstrapism of like just do it on your lunch break. That's that's definitely not what I'm saying. Um, but uh, but I do think that that some and not all poetry is brief, but but sometimes it's 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 brevity and its ability to be memorized and kind of pack that punch can 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 be strong. And yeah, I'm certainly somebody who wanted more time than that and will fall into the trap of saying even I have a job where my writing is built in. I mean, how amazing is that? And yet you still end up with committee meetings and meeting with students, which is lovely and prepping classes. And you you can have that creep too there, even though, you know, you should, of all people, be able to and, and, you know, committed to carving that out. Well, and I just feel like as like an ecosystem to live in, like it feeds... Like, I mean, not perfectly, but it feeds your creative life and keeps you thinking along those lines better than like if you worked in a bank. Like though, I guess T.S. Eliot worked in a bank. Yeah, and and while Stevens uh, certainly did. Um, yeah, what are you doing? Go work in a bank. Go work in a bank. <laughs> <laughs> you went to Yale. You can get a you can get a referral to yeah, somebody at come uh, on. Goldman Sachs. Yeah, is it too is it too late to become <laughs> a a, consult, a finance consultant or whatever that? The people who got those jobs with no qualifications except that pedigree, it was amazing. I mean, there were seniors in college getting sent like flowers from the. I mean, it was. Really? really? Yeah, yeah. It was really. That's how that happens. They were though. wooed. Yeah. That's how that happens, though. Like these big banks go in and basically try to get the the best young minds to come work on Wall Street. Yeah, so. I don't know if it's changed at all. I graduated from college in two thousand three, so that was before some of the two thousand eight stuff. So maybe people are more circumspect, but I don't know. Flowers. Nobody sent me flowers. No. In Boulder. They were, <laughs> they were like. Please stay in college. Yes. Yeah. Learn something. <laughs> you didn't learn anything in four years. Keep trying. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So uh, do you, I mean, you talk about work, enjoying work as a reader and a lover of poetry that like you have to work at a little bit. It's like a more layered experience. And um, I appreciate that. Like where you're, you're sort of, it kind of stays with you and you have to stay with it and it requires more of you than just like a quick scroll on your smartphone or whatever. Um, but the payoff is obviously bigger. And I think that in reading your work, you're clearly aspiring to something similar. 
um, your work feels to me anyway, very much that way where like you read it and then you read it again and you start to realize that like, Oh, you know, like you can pull these things apart and there's a double meaning here. And, um, I mean, can you speak to that? Like you're like how you approach the work, uh, what you aspire to, is it changing? Has it changed over the course of your career? So I think this, this book that just came out last year, this book Stead, which is, you know, the proofreading mark for put it back the way it was to me, it feels like the book that maybe on its surface would ask the most of a reader because it's sort of formal parameters are so constrained and different from uh, a lot of the reading that we do on a daily basis. It works a lot with anagrams. Um, I was going to use the word anagrammatic. Yeah. But then I was like, I don't even think that's a word. No, it it, it is. I mean, it, it kind of is. Yeah, I use that word too. Anagrammatic, um, constraint-based poetry. You know, you could call it um, you know, transpositional. I don't know. I mean... Um, what was the specific constraint, just so listeners can get their so heads wrapped around it? the book Stet. A lot of the poems in it work by way of the anagram, the anagram being taking one word or phrase and reworking the letters in that word or phrase and only those letters to make a different word or phrase. So it's kind of a limited palette of possibilities. And then the idea in there is kind of, can you get out of the handcuffs or find some, you know, um, uh, find some way to make something new in that situation. Um, and I started working with that form pretty intuitively. It was just something that st almost started as like marginalia for me. And you look at, I mean, uh, the poet James Merrill, uh, who is also like me or was like me, very interested in uh, drawn to wordplay kind of obsessively, uh, punning and playing and um he you see kind of anagrammatic marginalia in his work um but and so first i thought oh this is just something that i'm doing in my notebook for myself and then it became more insistent as a form and i started pushing on it um and i started taking other forms um like there are a couple of poems where i take a pr particular word like the word test and I'll have one poem that has the word test repeated, but kind of embedded in it. And then I take out in the next version of poem that T-E-S-T -E out of different words across it. And it makes a new poem. It's, it makes more sense on the page. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, I need to read it on the page to kind of get it. But for me, I want it to also work as sound, to have these echoes of sound coming through and repeating themselves. Um, and also, of course, there's just some, once you kind of see what's going on, some conceptual aspect where you know that there are these constraints at play. Um, so for me, I kept kind of soul searching and saying, why am I doing this? This is sort of this strange game. Um, what What's at stake here? Um, and as I went through these various kind of life changes, one relationship ended, another relationship began. I moved across the country. I decided to have a kid. Um, I moved across the country, but for me, that also meant coming back home. Um, You're from Baltimore. Uh, I'm from Maryland. Yeah. Um, I'm from uh, Bethesda outside of DC. Uh, but so, you know, my, my sister is like 30 minutes north by car. My parents are half an hour south. So um, there was this feeling for me of, I really want to make this fresh start, but 
coming to terms with the fact that I could only really do that out of the materials of my life that I already had. Oh, you see what I yeah, see? So you're kind of no, getting where that totally. <laughs> becomes a figure for what I was doing. Um, and so for me, it was kind of this enactment. And it actually is the book that feels to me the most like my really obsessive visual art where I'm making kind of this obsessive mark making over and over again, or images will appear again and again. I was going to say that because there's the intricacy of the drawings that you do, or at least the ones that I've seen online. And I feel like there's some overlap here, you know, aesthetic overlap. It really is. And a lot of the language that's coming up in these text-based pieces is language that's taken from poems in the book. And often it will be a reworking of poems in the book. Like, here's this poem in the book, there could have been a third version of it or a fourth version or a fifth version. And some of that sort of fragmented language ends up in the in the visual art. But obviously, for a reader coming to it, it's fragmented, it's strange, it's um, kind of elliptical. And so the I think it it's almost like if a reader comes into it with a, with a sense of humor, with some levity, even though a lot of the poems are melancholy um, or frustrated or angry. Um, I think if you bring that sort of structural levity to it, you can have a really good time with the book. I think if you're coming to it distrustful and feeling like, you know, what is this hermetic can I curse? Yeah. It's very mild. I mean, what's this hermetic bullshit, you know? Um, then what you'll find is hermetic bullshit, you know? And and yeah, it's it's strange. It's different. But the funny thing is when I go back, I have another book coming out with uh, Carnegie Mellon um, in the spring of 2020 called Flourish. And I wrote them over the same amount of time, like the kind of same chunk of maybe a little shy of a decade. Um and those poems are often much more narrative. They're uh, much more focused on the sentence as a unit of meaning instead of the word or even the letter as a unit of meaning. Um, but there's still the same kind of play and there's still the same kind of associative sound-based tissue to it. Uh, and you look, not that I go back and read my first two books that often, but when I do look back at them, I think, oh, I've been interested in this the whole time. What there is was... it? What is it? Like, I'm curious because I think everybody who writes, whether it's poetry or prose or whatever, has an interest in language, but you seem to be able to like trip out on an individual word. Uh, do you think about, do you think about things like, um, like from an uh, anthropological perspective and like the dawn of man and like what is language and Wittgenstein and all that kind of stuff? I, so the short answer is yes. The longer answer, I, I think, um, is I think this kind of obsession comes from poetry and language, you know, poetry is sort of roots in ritual and incantation and magic, the idea that uh, um, uh, Hugh, Hugh Kenner has the, had this essay um, uh, on like poetry and magic, uh, signs and spells, and he he talks about the the poet's job or the, the this kind of role that now has become a poet used to be to speak efficacious words. And by and that efficacious words sounds mild, but what he means is words that do something, words that like rid the city of rats or heal somebody or make somebody fall in love or talk to God. And I don't believe 
I, for can my, can you rid my uh, garage of mosquitoes? I please? try. See, you don't see it anymore, <laughs> do right. you? She banished the mosquito with the power of reverse. We haven't seen it in in like multiple <laughs> minutes. Um, uh, yeah, you don't need turmeric anymore. You're healed. <laughs> but no, that's the thing is, I don't believe in that. Um, yeah, what I, is the poet's job? I I mean I. Th- Oh, God, that's a big, hard question. Um, I think for me, I mean, a lot of this sense of, for me, poetry feels really magical. And some of the restlessness in my poetry is, I think, a tension between that sense of wanting to make something happen, um, wanting these words to be powerful, and the understanding that for me, in my moment, in my body, in my mouth, I'm falling, I fall short. Um, and finding a way to to live with that and still kind of celebrate that and celebrate that um, maybe all the magic we have is just that pleasure in the in the enactment. Um, so what is that? You said what is the role of poetry? Was that that? that yeah, was I mean, question? I guess it's changed too, right? I mean, over the over the ages, like there used to be maybe different functions that a poet might perform in a culture far removed from our own like where does it and and i guess then what 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 do you think the poet's role is now so i think it it, i think poetry can mean different things to different people um and steph burt's new book uh i think it's called don't read poetry or don't read poems um i'm in in the middle of reading it um and she's very much talking about the sense of what she means by don't read poetry uh, is it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. You can go to poetry for different things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I do I do definitely believe that, that there isn't this monolithic sense of poetry. Um, but I think for me, what hopefully yokes those together is that poetry, more often than not, um, isn't language as usual. It's putting a certain pressure on the the construction it's asking the reader to read with a different kind of attention um so you can't or you know e- even if it is just straightforward sentences um why is that choice being made uh so e- you know even if you have like a prose poem it's it's being made in contrast to what we expect from poetry um so poetry is sort of defying the expectations of language as usual, um, which asks for a certain attention, which I think, even if it's not changing the world, to get back to that idea of our phones destroying us and lack of attention, I mean, if each of us could practice more attention, I mean, I don't think that can be a bad thing. No, I mean, I feel like that's what you're doing instead. Like, you're I feel like I imagine like the physical act of writing it is like you just like staring at that word and like yeah, te- you just... teasing it apart and then putting it back together again and like forcing yourself to kind of slow everything way down. Yeah, you just went a little cross-eyed, which is totally, which is totally, <laughs> I think, what that felt like is uh, you're sort of like physically sort of scrambling yourself. Um, but I love this whole, but see, then I love the backstory. You're moving back home changing relationship you're gonna have a kid you're going back to where you grew up makes it all sort of congeal for me and i know that like it's some artists like bristle at that they're like don't demystify it don't conflate the personal with the artistic and all that kind of stuff but isn't it all of a piece it's i think it is and i want to know that and i was just um you know some people go to la and go to disneyland but uh i 
that's it, Disneyland, not Disney World. Disneyland. I haven't been to either one, but um, don't go. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you're going to have to go because of your kid, probably. Yeah. Can I shield her from it? I don't know. I mean, if like I'll she try. if she wants to go, it's hard I'll to. Go, yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, okay, let's not deprive the child of Disneyland, but we live in close proximity, so I've been way too many times. And a, it's fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. Like you go to Disneyland for a day with two kids. Mom and dad, I want to say you're going to spend a thousand dollars. That's terrifying. It's outrageous. Yeah. So I, I part of my never having been to Disneyland um, is so my mother, when I was a little baby, um, had a really scary brain tumor, uh, and I was I mean, like six months, eight, eight months old or something, um, and she survived it after you know multiple surgeries in 1981 or two is not an awesome thing. Um, so she's okay, but it, it means she's she's very uh, connected with her own mortality, and I, it didn't necessarily put her at peace with it more. Uh, it, it, but it, um, she's an amazing person. She's brilliant. Um, but what does she, she do? Um, she actually she was a stay at home mom, um, and now she's a stay at home grandma. So she's basically like committed her life to raising kids. Um, and uh, she was trained as a lawyer too. So you know, but um, but then smart people. Yeah, I know. It's uh, what does your dad do? She figured something out. Um, he is a researcher. He works has worked his whole life on one particular genetic immune disorder called chronic granulomatous disease (CGD). What is that? It is um, where essentially it's genetic, uh, and you can't fight off infections and it will be sort of latent in people and then suddenly you'll have three children in a family who are all dying i mean who are all you know and nobody knows what it is and then they end up coming to my dad at the national institutes of health um and what's interesting what's i think is really amazing about him and his work is during my childhood i called him a a, a pediatric uh, immune doctor and researcher, um, but now he's figured out ways where h- h- the patients he works with are able to survive and live into adulthood. Um, and so he's still, on some level, pediatric. But I sort of don't call him that. Now you know he's he he has managed to find a way to make this disease uh, one where, knock on wood, not always, but people can live with it. Um, wow. or, you know, um, difficult with difficulty, but so what you're saying is he wasted his life. He did nothing <laughs> valuable at all. He totally, he totally wait, big slacker. Yeah. He's still working. He's still, and we'll do things like, uh, suddenly he's like, Oh, I'm on the transplant. I'm like, wait, you're, you're not a transplant doctor. Are you like, well, I'm working on it now. I'm like, you don't work on transplants. What does that mean? He's going to be performing like the surgeries to transplant organs? I don't know if he's... I need to ask him more questions. I need to really follow up here. Um, So you were raised by brainiacs. They're pretty brainy. They're pretty brainy. Yeah. Um, He's pretty brainy. But, you know, and very committed. I mean, it's obviously super different from poetry, but very committed to something where most people have no idea what it is. Um, you know, and if you say CGD or chronic granulomatous disorder, obviously in his case, it's, it's life or death where if you have it, um, you sure as hell know about it. Uh, but 
that same thing, of, you know, where you're sort of so committed to this corner of the world, but then that opens outward. I mean, he ends up working with AIDS researchers and this kind of researcher and that kind of because there's some of these overlaps in this question of how, how can your body fight. But I asked him, I mean, I asked him once, like, are you disappointed that I'm a poet? Um, and he had a great answer that I'll tell people who are sort of having that what's it all about feeling about poetry or art where he says, he said to me, my job is to get people healthy enough in their bodies so that they can have a full life engaging with the things that matter, um, like poetry and art, you know, to lead a full human life, which is a life of the mind and the senses and um, engagement in that way. So, Jesus. I know. That's beautiful. I know. You know what it reminds me of? I want to say there's something that Churchill said very much along those lines about like why they were fighting or like... I'm going to fuck it up. But it was something like we're fighting so that we can make art or something. Yeah. God, did my dad plagiarize Churchill? He probably did. God, I and knew it. And, and then like pretended that it was his own. <laughs> dad, <laughs> dad, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. So it sounds like you had like a, a very like healthy, happy childhood in Bethesda. Yes. Do you yeah. have, do you have a, uh, extra political bent having been raised, you know, within close proximity to DC. I imagine that's in the water because a lot of people who work on Capitol Hill live in Bethesda, right? Yes, it's definitely in the water. Um, and, uh, you know, went to school with a lot of like children of, um, you know, of, of diplomat. It was like a very international area in a lot of ways. Um, uh, when I went, when I was going off to college, there was some mixer that was in D.C. that summer that I went to, and I sort of didn't understand these are the people who would be self-selecting and decide to be in D.C. Um, so it was all these, like, policy wonk college. And I went to the bathroom and cried because I was like, I've made a terrible mistake. Or, you know, I didn't, it wasn't occurring to me. The people who would be in D.C. are this particular, very aggressive, very, you know, <laughs> it was horrible. So that wasn't how it, but yeah, oh, the mosquito's back. I I knew I had the no power. The mosquito has returned. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, that wasn't, an, and I didn't, um, I didn't, D.C. is incredibly segregated. Uh, Baltimore's incredibly segregated. I mean, it feels sort of strange to say, yes, this, you know, this was nicer, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many systemic challenges to these areas. Um, and so coming back to Baltimore, there is definitely more of the, you know, but I, I think it's something that obviously is an American, uh, American problem on the whole. I didn't love the. Wait, what is an American problem? Oh, just just that segregation and that inequality. Oh, right. Um, uh, so that was you know growing up in D.C. I mean the tourist maps of D.C. like ended at at Southeast. Uh, you know, so in other words, it was like the map itself at that. And I don't know if that's still the case. And obviously, you know, even that makeup of D.C. is is changing in terms of gentrification. Um, but that's just to say, growing up. It felt like some of those big challenges were really insurmountable. And, of course, it still feels that way in Baltimore. Not that much time has gone by. Um, but Baltimore has a very different character than D.C. Uh, that I, agrees with me a lot more. What's, what is it? Just like more like down home? I think like weird. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have that like policy 
young professional kind of, I mean, I'm sure, actually, I'm sure there are neighborhoods in Baltimore that have that too, but, um, but yeah, DC, it felt, I mean, it, it had that sense of like, people have this agenda and they're on the move and, and honestly more power to them and thank you to them if they're there trying to make things better, um, which I know, you know, I know some of them are, um, and make things fairer and make things less messed up. Uh, so that I don't, like want to put on a like a power skirt and uh heels and like go down to capitol hill <laughs> like thank you somebody for like playing by those rules um somebody's got to do it i guess yeah because like i uh when i was in high school i had i got selected by my high school to go to boys state mm. do, do you know what these things are Boy, yeah boys yeah. state and girls state yeah and i fucking hated it it's do you have to wear like a suit and tie i had to go to i had to go to like it's like a camp and you like simulate government <laughs> So I was in Terre Haute, Indiana with my friend. Thank God my friend got selected too. I had somebody to like commiserate with, but I was ready to bail. I was like, let's get out of here. Cause we drove, we were seniors in high school. I was like, this isn't prison. Let's go. And he was like, no, we got to finish this. Got to see this out. What was your role? Was I it... became like, you're supposed to like sort it out. Like I, I was so checked out. I had a terrible attitude in a lot of ways. Like I was just, by the time I turned like 16, Going on 17, I was done with school. I was done. I just didn't want to do a fucking thing. I was tired. And I got selected for this thing. And I was like, this is stupid. I just want to get out of here. And you're supposed to like, you know, you sort of, you know, you congregate and you form the delegates and then you select candidates and, you know, you're supposed to make government. And so the certain people wanted to run for office. I didn't want to run for office. So my friend and I basically became campaign managers. Yeah. <laughs> we were like the we were like the uh, the David Axelrod and, <laughs> of uh, of this candidate. He was a kid from the school for the deaf. He was a and he wow. was, that's where yeah he was the deaf candidate. Mm -hmm. He became one of the final candidates, and he ran head to head with the guy that ultimately won like the governorship and like got to go to Washington and shake the president's hand or whatever. Wow! But you did your job. You, know you did his, your you know fake his, job. You know what his campaign slogan was? What? The only thing I can't do is here. Wow. Yeah. That's uh did you come up with that? I probably did. I wow. don't know. Yeah. But wow. he like he gave a speech. I mean, he was actually a really cool guy and like that part of it I suppose was fun, but um I guess it it just comes to mind when you talk about these people or the kind of person who's like I'm 21 years old. I'm going to Capitol Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is going on there yeah. psychologically? It's a certain kind of driven. And I know I mean, you have to be a different kind of driven to be like I'm going to be a writer. I'm. I mean, you know, all, any any of these things. Yeah, but it's. See, it's, this is why I like poets because, yeah, you're driven, but like it's sort of like the opposite of what you do if you're traditionally ambitious. Yeah, I'm there's driven. Something, there's something subversive about it. Yeah, I told you I have no sense of direction. So I'm like driven in circles. Good. You know what I mean? Just driven around, real circuitous, uh, but you know, driven. But we need that, and you know what? I think too just to be like extra complicated about it is that I think we need better people to make the decision to go to Washington and to engage in politics and to do those kinds of jobs because otherwise you seed the field to a bunch of vipers, which is what we've got now up there mostly. It's true. And not saying that I'm a good person, but I'm, I would be so terrified of oh, people being mean to me. I mean, somebody like calls me hermetic on Goodreads and I get sad, you know, <laughs> and She's so the most like hermetic member of Congress. 
She barely comes out of her office. Yeah, and when she yeah. does, she's like speaking in anagrams. <laughs> she keeps rearranging the words. Who does she think she is? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's like it's. I, I guess I have this like idealistic vision of more poetic souls, or just better, uh, deeper souls engaging and wanting to be public involved in public service just because i just feel like wow man the the crew that we've got yeah. is sorely lacking but i also completely understand how people would want nothing to do with that at all as like an act of just basic sanity yeah and i do say i mean not to throw it on the next generation which we and the people before us have you know left everything in terrible shape um but i will say working with students um feels like a teeny teeny tiny part of that opening them up to the idea that like yes you're a creative person but you can be engaged in these other ways and um thinking about in just engagement and that being a writer doesn't always have to mean you're totally isolated and selfish and um you know you can be if not part of politics part of a community well and i mean not to make this too much about politics but I, there is a literary point that i'm trying to make I feel like many of our best leaders are often very skilled writers. And I think what I'm getting at is that politics is about language, ultimately, like persuasion, articulation. Yeah. Um, you know, you're trying to bring people around to your point of view and connect and move people emotionally. And so it's some of the same work in a weird way, you know? I really do think so. I mean, Jericho Brown used to be a speechwriter, uh, the poet Jericho Brown. Um, I think, I mean, both in those literal ways of like, there's some crossover, but yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to, like what you said, you want to move people. You have to move people. And when you, when you can't, I mean, yeah, it, it's, if it's not working with your words, then you're kind of lost. So what, you, you grew up in Bethesda. Your parents are uh, solid citizens and brainy. You got a sister? I do. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And a younger brother. So good good family situation. Um, and you seem, with a lawyer mom and a, and a doctor dad, like you would, like going into poetry is not necessarily the most logical uh, outcome or like the expected outcome, just basing it on, uh, you know, your, your situation at home. Was there someone or something in your life that you point to and say that was probably the pivot point that brought me in? That's a good question. And um, for those, you know, for those listening who who were thinking this, there's also this simple fact. Of, I mean, I I wasn't, you know, I'm not like a like a prince of some kind. You know, I mean, there there are people who are filthy rich, but I, you know, was absolutely comfortable. And so there's a, a there's a privilege to. Uh, be able to ev to entertain the idea of pursuing art. Right. Um, you know, I mean, somebody, but but then that said, I mean, somebody like Wanda Coleman, so I was just looking at her, I mean, she she worked like crazy. She worked as a medical transcriber. She did, you know, did all kinds of um, jobs outside of poetry to and get- Wanda Coleman is a legendary LA poet. And you were saying before, I think we came on that you were looking at her archives. I was looking at her archive. Yeah, her archive is at UCLA. And I'm I'm really- interested in her work, particularly her, um, American sonnets. Uh, and so, but anyhow, that's, that's just, I, I bring her up because I think it's possible to come to poetry, um, you know, from any sort of situation that you come to it from. She grew up in Watts, uh, which is, you know, far cry from Bethesda. Uh, but so that's just to say, I do, th I think there was some 
privilege, a lot of it, to be able to look around and say, what what interests me? You know, what am I passionate about? Um, and I, I wish for everyone to have that opportunity. Um, but I think a lot of it was... Was like bodily or physical. I mean, I was always, I have like a very, my mind picks up song lyrics, it sponges them in. Um, you, you like memorize them on one listen? Yeah, that kind of thing. They just like stick with me. Um, and so I, you know, was always interested in language. My mother was always playing music, Motown, folk music, things like that. So if I sort of look back, I, you know, I try to make a narrative of like she played music. There was a lot of reading. I was passionate about it that way. Um, but I think some of it is just more intuitive than that. It was just something I, I always loved all kinds of art making, um, just like the process and the practice of like immersing yourself in art. Um, and, you know, always had like a notebook or a diary. Um, and so in that sense, I don't know, I think it was allowed and cultivated f from a place that began very intuitively. And you I mean, you clearly had the grades to get into Yale. So like you were somebody who could do both, like you have to be able to do math and science too. You can't just get in because you got like a good verbal score. Like, yeah, you have I that was part pretty bad at math and science. I think I had to be like really good at English. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, this person, yeah. I, but no, yes. Yeah, I, I was okay. I was I was good at, yeah, exactly like you're saying. I was sort of committed enough to the other stuff to kind of knuckle down and get it done to, to get to that place. Yeah. And no big freakouts, like big rebellious periods or anything like that? I mean, I definitely think I had a... Um, oh, yeah. You said earlier in college you had sort of a rebellious streak. Yeah, there was a, re a re sort of a re rebellious spirit, but that uh, didn't, didn't manifest very dramatically. Um, Damn it. I think I was just in L.A. My, um, my high school and college boyfriend lives in L.A., who's wonderful, and we're friends now. Um, but uh, Does he write for I, TV? He, he, um, yeah, he, he works for TV. Yeah, he's like a producer. Um, yes. Uh, but he's also a writer. He's a fiction writer, and it, so. Um, but can I you had, say his name or no? Yeah, Adam Kaplan. He's wonderful. Okay. K a p l a n. That rings a bell. Um, he uh, he's fantastic, and uh, hung out with him and his wife last night. But anyhow, this is not going anywhere except to say when you asked about rebellion, I'm like, well, there's maybe like one or two stories that I, you know, I won't know. I. I <laughs> I won't go there now, um, but uh, but they were like sort of your very run of the mill kind of rebellion. I I was I was sort of sneaky rebellious where I wanted to get away with things. I didn't want to make a big statement about it. You didn't um, go you didn't go completely crazy or anything. No, I think I I mean I think my brother was more rebel. My sister was like the good girl, but then who still got in trouble for stuff. So wait, who's older? Who's my oldest? sister's the oldest. You're, you're middle. Yeah. Uh, I'm the middle. Yeah. So middle child is like peacemaker kind of get, I'm, are you I'm, middle, I'm middle too? Yeah. Wait, do you have, what, what are the two sisters? Two sisters. Wow. That's awesome. I freaked out though. I was the big, I mean, Did in my you? family, I was by far the worst behaved. Remind me where you grew up. Uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee and Indiana. Okay. okay. Um, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to go, uh, next week. Uh, it's, it's my anniversary. I'm going to spend my wedding anniversary in Milwaukee. Wow. How many people say that? Look at yeah. you. Yeah. Really getting out there. Um, why is this? Um, because, because I'm, 
going to, we're going to a wedding in Wisconsin, and then I guess we're like flying back through Milwaukee, it's and we're beautiful. like, yeah, yeah, I like Milwaukee. Hey, it's not so bad, yeah. especially this time of year. I like, you know what I like about Milwaukee that like the bars look like they're in houses. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's a good place to to drink beer. Yeah, they just have solid like zoning for beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, the Germanic culture and yeah, it's like Germanic Scandinavian. I mean, it's changed probably, but when I was a kid, there was a very strong like Bavarian German feeling. I guess maybe some some Norwegian and uh, Swedish too, but you felt it up there. Yeah, uh, it's changed maybe not for the better. It seems like, at least politically, but hmm. yeah. it's a beautiful place. And uh, this time of year when the weather's good and you can be out on the water and yeah. it's not a bad place. Might You might be romantic even. I think it will. <laughs> I think, you know, it's... Uh... What's the name of this? There's a like an old school German restaurant that last time I was there, just a couple years ago, I ate at. It's like Mulder's or something like that. You have to look it up. Just look up like famous German restaurant. Famous German. You don't think there will be like four thousand famous no, German restaurants? No, but this one's like downtown in like the old part of downtown. Is that the Ward? What, what's it called? Yeah, you, ward Three you, or Ward something? Like something. That. Yeah. I uh, I was a kid when I was there, so like all that stuff was lost on me. Like mm-hmm. you know, like I didn't drive when I was there. Yeah. Um, but you can you can find it. I ate there. It's like it's got some sort of this like old German castle kind of feel and. They serve like kielbasa and I mean, just like it's old school. That's that's perfect. We'll do, we'll do some like happy anniversary, some, honey. Here's a, you just got like a big stein of here's beer. A, yeah, yeah. That's just like some kind of worst, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you're welcome for that. Thank hot you. Tip. Thank you. That's um, uh, that's it, great. It's been great talking to you. I love having poets on this show. I need to do it more often. Yeah, well, thank you, and it's really great to meet you. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad to get to talk to you. This was wonderful. So, when are you you out of here? You like you're here and then you're gone. I read, I read, and then I go. Yes, yeah, just yeah. like, like a rock go. star. Yeah. <laughs> Drop the mic and go to the airport in a black suburban. There you go. Next stop, Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to you, and nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. Okay, that is Dora Malik. Her poetry collection, Stet, is available from Princeton University Press. You can also grab her other collections. One is called Say So. The other is called Shore Ordered Ocean. And then keep an eye out for her forthcoming collection entitled Flourish, which will appear in 2020 from Carnegie Mellon University Press. Dora Malik. Go get her work. Go get her poetry. It's out there. You can find her on the internet at doramalik.net, and you can follow her on Twitter at Dora Malik. Or you can enroll in the writing seminars, or get accepted, I guess, or whatever it is, at Johns Hopkins University, and you can learn from her. You have options. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say to me, if you have uh, some feedback or you want to tell me a story, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. If you like the show and listen regularly and you want to support the show, Throw a few bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also rate and review the show at iTunes. That's a nice thing to do. It helps 
Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's out there. It's a great way to listen. It's an app. It's the official Other People with Brad Listy app. Should I get uh, a new iPhone? I have an iPhone 6, and uh, I'm thinking about getting the 11. Am I a sucker? I don't know. Kind of feel like I am. Maybe I should just run this one into the ground. Though it kind of is being run into the ground because the battery runs out really quickly. I don't know what's going on. I'm sort of feeling like uh, that new battery life could be what closes it for me. Plus, I've waited five generations. I haven't, it's not like I update every year. I'm talking myself into this, aren't I? I'm gonna do it. So, uh, next week on the program, or actually this week, this Wednesday, you know what I mean, the Wednesday episode, it's coming up, and it is my 600th episode, 600 episodes of this show. My wife is extremely turned on right now. (laughs) 